has been a week of remembering things and remembrance as we remember yesterday, 9-11. And everyone in, us, everyone in here has certainly, um, if you were alive, you know where you were at, that time where you heard the, the awful terrorist attacks upon America. I remember I was, I was throwing trash as a trash man driving a truck. I remember one of my workers coming up to me and asking me, have you heard what happened? And I had no idea and turned on the radio and, and obviously from that day forward it has forever been burned in our memory. Today I want to speak to you about leaving a memory, leaving a legacy, and remembering. If you have a copy of God's Word, I hope that you do. I will ask you, if you will, if you'll turn with me to Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14. And today our examination of the Word of the Lord will be in the first 11 verses. I can't help but to want to, to praise God for His blessings. We certainly do praise the Lord for His goodness. We praise God for, we praise the Lord for, for Bethany today, coming and being baptized as a profession of her faith and that demonstration and how the Lord drew her from out of darkness and into His glorious light. What a wonderful display that is. There is much to praise God for today. As much as there is bad in the world today, there is much more to praise God over. Before we read the Word of the Lord, I want to do something a little bit different today. I want us to stand. Let's stand together. Don't worry, we will not sit back down. We'll read the Word from here. But what I wanted to do today is I just wanted to sing the doxology. I just wanted to sing that before we read God's Word. So let's do that. Let's sing together. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him all creatures here below. Praise He above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and how to kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he, that is Jesus, was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at the table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and she poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was this ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor, and they scalded her. But Jesus said, Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. 
but you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body before my burial, and truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Let's pray together. Lord, we ask you that you would add your blessing to the reading of this word to our heart and mind. And truly, we praise you from all, for all blessings. We praise you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit today. We pray that you use this word today to speak to us so how we might live out our faith for the world to see and be drawn to the Son and to the gospel. We pray it now in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated, please. In uh, just a few minutes, uh, we'll have the opportunity to worship the Lord further as uh, we observe the elements of the Lord's Supper together. Again, I said that today is a day of memorial, today of remembering and celebrating in that memorial and worshiping in that memorial. The scene in Mark 9 or Mark 14, it lines up very well with today's occasion as we prepare our heart and mind to commune together. If you recall, Jesus had just spent what would be to us in the verses, which would be 37 verses uh, to us, an intermission to instruct the disciples to be aware and to be awake. If you remember the last time we were in those verses, we had the screen behind us uh, fall down and woke every one of us up here. And so uh, it should be very, uh, very uh, relevant to you. You should remember that. If anything else, remember during the time when Pastor Larry was reading from chapter 13 around verse 30, uh, 24, uh, we remember, or 34, that the screen come crashing down and the Lord used that to wake us up, didn't he? So this is the intermission. He is instructing his disciples to look for signs of his return. And I have been in God's word for almost 40 years now. And I can tell you, I believe that we are closer to the return of the Lord Jesus, more closer today than we were yesterday. Amen. Do you believe that? It is during chapter 13 that I have called this eschatological intermission when Jesus will set the stage for his disciples. Here is the theme that has been set in chapter 13. When you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, you look for my signs. When brother will come against brother, when there will be wars and there will be earthquakes in diverse places, when you see these signs, know that my return is at hand. But here is the theme through all of this. Jesus is setting this thing for the disciples and for you and for me to serve Him until the Son of God returns. This eschatological intermission is between Jesus issuing a warning to the disciples and to watch out for the scribes and Pharisees in chapter 12. Watch out for the scribes and Pharisees and many that are like them and to watch for their betrayal, which we'll pick up in chapter 14. So I want to ask you a question. 
You know I like to ask questions. In fact, I believe every sermon that has ever been preached ought to ask some challenging questions to the recipients. And so I ask some questions to you today. This is a question that I know that all have pondered at some point. Those who are closer to the grave or closer to glory, I believe, would ask this more frequently than maybe that those that might be young and healthy. But it is a question that I believe we all ask nonetheless in our lives. As a child of God, even outside of being a child of God, this is a question that every human being, I believe, will ponder at some point. But for you today as the Christ follower, what kind of legacy do you want to leave? What kind of legacy do you want to leave? If you were to go right now to be with Jesus, right now, worshiping the King of Kings, even with Miss Melba this morning, worshiping her King, if you were to go to be with Christ right now, and you were to worship at the feet of Jesus, what would be left behind? Even that you might not care what's left behind, behind here, but you care now, don't you? What kind of legacy would you leave? If you were to go to be with Him right now, how do you want to be remembered? Whatever the legacy is, I have to push you on it. Are you pushing forward to make that legacy a reality? What do I mean by that? If I want to be remembered as a good father, a good dad, then my children should reflect that when I am gone. If I was to be a great and honest man, a man that would not tell a lie, a man that would be a man of integrity, then I should be known for that integrity. When I am dead and gone, people will say, well, Pastor Larry was a man of his word. He was a man of integrity. If a person wants to be known as a follower of Jesus, a Christ follower then it should follow, as tough as this is to hear, that there would be and must be some people that you have discipled along the way. That's a tough word to hear. If I'm a Christ follower and I believe in Jesus, I must have some people that I have helped disciple along the way. And for all of my points that I might make on a Sunday morning... That might be good points to you. On the way out the door, you might say, Pastor Larry, that was a good sermon. There were some good points that you made. And for all my points that might be good points that I might make, points that might be spot on, you might say, well, that sermon seemed to be well put together and well structured. And for all of that, I best have some people that I have helped disciple along the way. If you're a good teacher and you articulate well in your classroom. Still, you must have some people that you have helped groom in the image and likeness of Christ along the way. 1 Timothy 6 and verse 11 says, But as for you, O man of God, flee from these things. You want to leave a good legacy? You pursue righteousness. You pursue goodness. You pursue faith. You pursue love. You pursue steadfastness and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you have called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I I believe that's a good start, isn't it? 
I want to be known as a person that has pursued righteousness, pursued godliness and faith and love and gentleness and steadfastness. But I would add from Mark 14, I would add generosity. I want to leave a legacy like that. All the while knowing that I am not perfect, but strive for that perfection. A lot of times I'll hear people say, well, preacher, you know I'm just not perfect. You know what I hear? An excuse to live the way you want in sin. An excuse. I know I'm not perfect. You don't have to tell me that you're not perfect. I know that already. I know that I'm not like that either. But I should strive. I should strive to be conformed to the image and likeness of Jesus. And so today I want to share with you a message from God's Word of leaving a legacy and the two positions that we see the beginning of Mark chapter 14. But what I want to do first is I want to set the scene. All right, here's the scene in Mark 14, beginning at verse 1. Now it is two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which would last seven days, this Feast of Unleavened Bread. The chief priests and the scribes were seeking on how they might arrest Jesus by stealth and how they might kill Him. I want you to make no mistake about it, the Passover and the death of the Lord Jesus line up in such a way that reflects the sovereignty of God as the master designer of history. It is not by coincidence, but by the sovereignty of God Almighty to show and demonstrate that our Lord has been in control and always has been. The sovereignty of God to show that the spotless Lamb of God is to be slain to eradicate sin once and for all. And as the classic theological mantra says, the sacrifice of Jesus, the Lamb of God, is sufficient for all. That doesn't mean that all will be saved. But it's sufficient for all. The death on the cross of our Lord Jesus is sufficient for all. And if you do not recall the first Passover, the reference can be easily found in Exodus chapter 12, as the Lord God said of Himself in chapter 12, verse 12, I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of judgment I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you. On the house where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you or destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This celebration and memorial was ingrained in every Hebrew person as much as the Shema in Deuteronomy 6.4 was part of their vocabulary, Exodus 12 was also part of their vocabulary. They remembered the Passover. It was ingrained in every Hebrew person. The Passover meal was to be eaten on the evening of Nisan the 15th, or what we might know as March-April time frame, remembering how God had rescued His people from death by them simply obeying His command. The Feast of Unleavened Bread, which would last for seven days, is a memorial to the Hebrews' flight out of Egypt. 
And how is it a memorial to the flight out of Egypt, this unleavened bread? They were to be ready at any given moment, so much so that they had not even time to add a little bit of yeast to the bread for it to rise. There's no time for the bread to rise. We've got to go at a moment's notice. Now, much of Hebrew culture has very deep meaning and de very deep meaning, even in the names that are given to a lot of people and patriarchs in the Bible, has very deep meaning. And as the Lord told His disciples, if you remember in chapter 13, to be ready. You don't even have time to go up on your roof. Be ready at a moment's notice to flee to Judea. Be ready to go. So is the Feast of Unleavened Bread, a reminder of the time that the Lord told His people to be ready to move out. And it is no coincidence, even at this time, that the chief priests and the scribes were looking to kill the Lord. This is not anything that is new. Jesus had already warned the disciples in chapter 12 to beware of them. But then in verse 2 it says, For they said, as they were looking to kill the Lord, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And by the way, they had already planned to kill the Lord Jesus in John 11 and verse 57 at the triumphant entry and the great argument that we find in the temple. They had already planned to kill the Lord Jesus, but then they decided because the growing robustness of the crowd, it, it made them decide to wait until after the feast was over. He had become just too popular and had drawn too much attention, that is, that at least for now. So now with that background set, I want us to look at the two different types of legacies that are left here in Scripture. One is to ascribe towards, and the other is to, of course, steer away from. And I would never suggest to you to negate the power of the Holy Spirit to lead us away from one and towards another. So don't hear me saying to negate the power and the scope and the drawing of the Holy Spirit. But there's a little break in the action once again. Something that I like to call a Markian sandwich. This is a sandwich presented by the evangelist Mark in a theological form. And we're going to look at this in just a few, just a few verses. But what I want to uh, express to you is the cost of a legacy and these two positions of the legacies that are left behind. So when the Bible's open in verse 3, I want to present to you the legacy of the generous... And the scoundrel, the generous and the scoundrel. So verse 3, our Lord Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper. As he was reclining at the table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and she poured it over the Lord Jesus in his head. Now, Jesus said that everywhere the gospel is preached that this woman would be remembered. And it is so. It is true because each gospel account carries this narrative in one way, shape, or form. Jesus was camped in Bethany, which is two miles from Jerusalem. Two miles from Jerusalem at the house of one who is called Simon the leper. Now, being that Jesus is in the home of Simon a leper, we could, I believe, by inference, we can say that this is Simon, the former leper, being that he is now healed and cleansed 
by the Lord Jesus. Now, Jesus would have no problem staying the night with a leper who was unclean. He would have no problem. I mean, he's the king of glory. He could, he could heal. Uh, and so Jesus would have no problem staying at, in the house of one that was unclean, a leper. But certainly the others would have issue, no doubt. And so we infer that this is Simon the clean and no longer the leper. We could say this is Simon the once leper who has now have been made clean and healed by Jesus. But Mark tells us that the contents of this flask was pure spikenard. Now this was used as perfume in many other different applications and was very, very costly. In Matthew's account, the woman anointed the head of Jesus and in John, John calls this woman Mary. And in Luke's account, it is the feet and she simply dries his feet with her hair. And all of them are correct. All are correct. The woman who was humbled at the presence of her Messiah, the anointed one, broke the flask and covered, listen, covered Jesus from head to toe. Covered him from head to toe. Very costly, she gave all that she had in that flask. If you, if you rewind in the Gospel of Mark, think of the the widow who gave all that she had, the two mites, that she could just barely rub together two, right, two mites, and put them in the tithe box in the, outside of the temple. She gave all that she had. Now this woman gave all that she had in her alabaster flask. There is already an implied lesson here, isn't it? without even going forward. There's already an implied lesson, and hopefully you've already heard the lesson that, that is implied here, that, 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 that one we will touch on over and over again. Sacrifice, humility, generosity. If we give all that we possess, if I was to go out right now, if I was to sell my house, if I was to sell my truck, if I was to sell my boat, <laughs> if I was to sell all my possessions, all I had was the clothes on my back. And if I was to take all that money and lay at the feet of the Lord Jesus, it would not even come close enough. This is the lesson would not even come close. It is still less than what he deserves. Now obviously, not all saw the worth of the Lord. Because the next verse says that there were some who said amongst themselves indignantly or angrily, why was this ointment wasted like this? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the, to the poor. And they scolded her. And by the way, whoever said this, and we'll talk about this in just a moment, whoever said this didn't care for the poor. They had no care for the poor. There is always that one person or persons who would ridicule or criticize the work of the Lord. And I don't want to be that person. Always that one person, when the Lord is at work, will always try to stir a little bit. Whether it be because of their own pride, whether it be because of their own failure to trust God's will. And sometimes that's what it is. A failure to trust God's will. 
And to know that God is going to stretch every resource that we have if we give it to Him and for His glory. But there is always that one that will, that will fail to trust God. And maybe their pride will rise up a little bit. When God is at work, the enemy will do all that he can to sow discord. Whether it is a church that is set on fire or a screen that will fall behind you. Now the word that is used here for indignant carries the notion that they, the disciples, were so angry that their nostrils were flaring. Imagine a bull. I've never seen a bull. I don't plan on getting that close to a bull to see his nostrils flaring. But that's the imagery. Their nostrils were flaring. They were so angry. John 12 and verse 4 says, The one who protested outright was none other than the treasurer of the group, Judas Iscariot. The spikenard was worth a year's worth of wages. I mean, it, it is like today, if I was to take my retirement and spend it on the Lord. Very costly, worth a year's worth of wages. And if you think about the life of Judas, the life of the Lord was only worth 30 pieces of silver to him, the price of a slave. So the question is asked, why was the ointment used in this way? Why was it a waste? Obviously, Judas did not understand the object of the anointing, the anointed one. Nor did those wishing to kill him. I want you to think about it for a minute. Because we give glory to God in the doxology and in our worship. Here is the king of glory. The second person in the triune Godhead in flesh. God and man simultaneously, the spotless lamb who gave his life, who is about to lay his life down for his life and people who are just like Judas, just like you and me. And this anointing is a waste. If anything, it wasn't enough. Jesus is not only worth this anointing, but so much more. And the, and the woman saturated Jesus with this ointment from head to toe. And we are, as worshipers, to saturate our souls with the joy of who He is and His worthiness. I reflect on the words of John Piper who said this of Christ's glory. I want you to notice the play on words. And this was not even in a commentary from Mark 14, but listen to the play on words. Consider Jesus. Know Jesus. Learn what kind of person it is you say you trust and love and worship. Soak in the shadow of Jesus. Saturate your soul with the ways of Jesus. Watch Him. Listen to Him. Stand in awe of Him. Let Him overwhelm you with the way that He is. But no. They scalded the woman for her sacrifice. In fact, Jesus had to step in in verse 6. Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing for me. For you will always have the poor. And, and whenever you want, and you could do good for them then, but you will not always have me. 
She has done what she has, what she could. She has anointed my body before my burial. And I say to you that wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, she, what she has done will forever be memorialized. It, it will be told in memory of her. Imagine being canonized in the canon of Scripture for generosity and giving all and giving above and beyond. She has given up much to honor the Lord. And, and even as the disciples tried to mumble again uh, amongst themselves, Jesus knew, their, uh, knew them well. He knew their heart. He, he knew their intentions. Even if they were trying to keep it hush-hush, He knew their intentions. And He says to them, Why do you grieve her with such a great charge and a great crime? They acted as if this woman had, had murdered someone herself. The, 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 the crime, if you will, would not have matched the punishment. They scalded her to such a degree, you would have thought that she would have a charge that said murder or something of that great magnitude. And she was innocent of any wrongdoing, any wrong motive. Because if not, the Lord Jesus would have simply called her out on it. I believe that she was honoring Jesus as Messiah Although she would not have understood the scope and the fullness of Messiah, she was honoring him as anointed one. And in this case, this one-time prostitute, as Luke 7 verse 37 calls, a woman of the city, was more honoring and more understanding and more worshipful than the whole twelve that Jesus called as his own disciples in this one moment. And he said that she has done something morally and ethically beautiful and worshipful, she has sacrificed something of great price. For you will always have the poor, and you can do for them at any time in your ministry, but you will not have me. You will not always have me. So Jesus, of course, is alluding to his death. And in this case, he is calling them to be generous. He's calling them to be generous to the poor. Don't, don't overlook that. You will have time to be generous to the poor, and disciples will be able to minister to them, and like, like Judas suggests. But Judas, of course, his motives were wrong. In fact, if you want to see a realization of this, where Jesus would say that you will have the poor with you, you can minister to them, you've got time, you've got plenty of time, if it will, before your own death, that is. You have plenty of time to minister to the poor. If you want to see a realization of this, look at the gospel community in Acts chapter 2, around verse 45, where the Bible shows the early church selling what they have and giving to the poor. She's done all that she could. She's anointed his body for burial before he was even in the tomb. What she had in her heart and in the power of her hands to do, she done according to her ability. And we are called to do the same today for our Lord. To give, to be generous, to be loving, to be humble. See, Mary couldn't grasp the fullness of the Lord's death but she showed sympathy and understanding of what was at hand. Nothing that she understood. She could not get the full understanding, but she knew what the, word, what the word of the Lord and what he was saying was, in fact, true. This is something that the naysayers here had, had yet to grasp. And sometimes we are like the naysayers too. We don't like to admit that, do we? 
We don't like to admit that. We get caught up in, in what we think is right and we forget what is more worshipful. And I believe this is a clear indication of what is, could be right and, and what is more worshipful. Sure, it could have been sold to the poor and would have been a good thing. To sell something and give to the poor, it's a good thing, isn't it? It's a good thing to give to, to the poor. It would have been a good thing, but the worshipful thing, that the more worshipful thing is to worship Jesus in this way. That would lead much more and many more people to be humbled, and then they themselves go out and serve. See, the legacy of the generous woman who anointed the Lord Jesus helps us to see this. There are some good things that we do and good ministries that we have incorporated in our local body. But is it more worshipful? Are they more worshipful? Because of this woman's actions and her goodwill and her generosity, she will be forever canonized in Scripture as a generous, humble, and faithful woman. But then we turn the corner and we have the legacy of the scoundrel. We've already talked about a couple of scoundrels or a group of them in the Bible, the scribes and the Pharisees. And by the way, we are not so far divorced from them either. If you struggle with sin, if you struggle with the flesh, we are closer to them than we might want to realize. But then we have the legacy of the scoundrel, which we all might say that we are closer to since the Bible says that all have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God, but we are thankful for God's abundant grace and mercy. Mark 14, the scoundrel is clearly noted as Judas. The Bible tells us in verse 10 that this one Judas, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priest in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and they, and, uh, they promised to give him money. We know this to be 30 pieces of silver, the price of a lowly slave. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. Now, I mentioned that this was a, what we call a Marquean sandwich. A sandwich, theological terms, offered by the evangelist Mark. The two verses are on the bottom pieces of this bread, if you were to call it the sandwich. So the top piece of the discourse in the verse is 1 and 2. So the natural reading would look something like this. We would read verse 1, we would read verse 2, and then 10 and 11. And right in the middle is the generous woman. It is a teachable tapestry that, that Mark the evangelist has woven for you. And it is hard to overlook the two positions of the generous and the scoundrel or betrayer. As a woman is known for her good deed and her generosity and her worshipful actions, Judas is forever memorialized as a betrayer. At the very base of Judas is depravity of man and sinfulness of man and the constant struggle that we have with sin. And, and we could say of Judas that he was, we could say that Judas, even though he was among them, was not of them. He was among the disciples, but not of them. And my point is not to weigh whether or not Judas later on, his repentance was genuine. It is not to say whether or not Judas was saved or not. That is not my drive here this morning. But to see the lasting legacy he left as a warning. 
And at the very heart of this, Judas did not trust the word of God nor his provision of a suffering servant Messiah. We could say that he left the legacy of not trusting God and his provision of a suffering servant Messiah. Plus, in the words of Hall of Fame pro wrestler Ted DiBiase, known as the Million Dollar Man, the Million Dollar Man would say everybody has a price. And of course, Judas' price is the price of a slave or 30 pieces of silver. In today's vernacular, Judas was a sellout. I don't want to be a sellout, do you? (laughs) I don't want to be a sellout. What God has called me to do, I don't want to shriek from that that calling. If God has called me to be faithful and generous and charitable and loving and an evangelist, uh, then I certainly do not want to shriek from that. If God has called me or you to be a teacher or disciple, I do not want to shriek from that either. I do not want to be a sellout. Now, with these two legacies on display, and for our consideration, where do you and I fit in to this? I I don't know many here today that would say that I fit into the category of being a Judas. I don't know how many people in in here would say, I'm closer to Judas, even though there might be moments in our life where we are not trusting God's Word and taking it at at face value. But, But I know many who are here today who are generous and ascribe to, to being generous or strive to be in that way. And to call somebody a Judas today, I mean, it's a deep insult, isn't it? But just who in this story is the most generous? I want you to notice what I have set up for you this morning is something in logical terms that we call a false dichotomy because there is a third in the story that is way more generous than the woman, or not generous, as Judas is betrayed. I submit to you that the object of this narrative is not the woman, it is not Judas, it is not the scribes, it is not the Pharisees. The object of this narrative is the Lord Jesus himself, who is the most generous. You and I have the extreme privilege of knowing the narrative of the death and the resurrection of our Lord. So it is the gospel of the Lord Jesus that is the most charitable of all. It is the most generous of all. The gospel, the good news that purports the truth that Jesus died on the cross and rose again from the grave, the spotless Lamb of God who came to die in our place as we are sinners, as we are vagabonds, is the most telling and the most generous truth that you will ever hear. It is John Stott in the preacher's portrait that said, so I shall be considering his message and his authority, the character of the proclamation that he called to make the vital necessity of his own experience of the gospel, the nature of his motive, the source of power, the moral qualities which should characterize him, notably his humility, his gentleness, his love, and I would add to that, His everlasting and eternal generosity. In short, there are some good traits seen in the woman who anointed Jesus all over from head to toe. And there are places in in Judas's life that we can see that helps us to, to flee or stay away from actions such as this and to trust in God's word, take it at face value. 
But the true legacy that we want to leave is not solely the woman's actions toward Jesus, but to leave a legacy where we are like Jesus. He is the example that we ascribe to be. That is the legacy that we seek to be like. In fact, I leave you with these words from Romans 8, 29 and 30, written from the hand of the Apostle Paul. From those whom he forsake, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. That's the legacy. In order that we might be the firstborn amongst many brothers, and those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he glorified. Is it the ill fate of Judas that we stay away from? Sure. Is it the woman and her generosity and her charity and her humility? Sure. But it is the gospel and the humbleness of our Lord to die on the cross for our sins. That is the legacy. Let's pray together.